Hi friends, today we are talking about building a music program at a new campus. This is a conversation I had with my friend, Dr. Amanda Hoke. Dr. Hoke is national board certified. She is Kodai certified and conversational solfege certified. She's also the president of Kodai Educators of North Carolina, and she was kind enough to sit down and talk to me about her approach to building a music program. You can listen to this podcast here, or you can jump over to YouTube to watch our conversation. All right, let's jump in. My name is Victoria Bowler, and this is episode 67 of Elemental Conversations. Okay, Dr. Hoke, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Okay, so you wear several different hats as you are going into this year. You are wearing the hat of someone um, who's at a new campus, but you are also wearing another hat of someone who is going on maternity leave. So you have a unique perspective both on entering a new campus and then kind of transitioning out and then transitioning back in. So you have like 30 million plates that you are spinning here. Yeah, I'm a little, um, I'm a little insane, I would say, <laughs> trying to accomplish all of this. But yeah, you were correct about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so talk to me. You're starting at a new campus, and you have some idea of where students are musically because you've been able to have some communication with their previous teacher. Um, so where are you thinking about starting instruction this year? That's a good question, because on top of all of this, um, and this not, might not be relevant to some of your listeners, but it's also a year round school. Oh, so right. that means, yeah, that means that um, instead of going back in a traditional calendar, which would be August, I'm going back in July. And so the students have had a three week break. So they're just getting out of um, the previous school year and coming right back into it. So I have never taught in a situation like this. So I think it changes my perspective a bit because I'm assuming that the students will not have lost as much. They will have retained more information, <laughs> hopefully. So um, I'm bouncing into it with an open mind. And I really, this is the third new campus I've been on in the past six years. So I feel like I'm trying to keep an open mind about what not, not, I'm trying to keep it in mind and not assume where the students are at. So I always try to do a few of my own informal assessments and just listening with my eyes and my ears and my body as much as possible to get to know the students first. Um, so I actually wouldn't even call it instruction. I would say it's more of like getting to know you for the first, I don't know, sometimes it takes longer, but the first month or so, the first few weeks, I just really tried to get to know the kids and that helps me, it helps inform everything. So yeah, there's some some more, um, I'm, I'm kind of digging and listening and, and trying to figure out where they are at musically. But I think more importantly, I'm trying to decide for myself, like um, how I want to approach them as a human being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about some of that. So with your previous campuses, what were you walking into and how is this one different? Because I think like you mentioned, um, it might not be relevant to everybody listening that you're at a year round school, but you've been in kind of a lot of different situations with your other campuses, starting new programs, um, sometimes kind of from scratch. So how are you, how did you approach those past campuses as well? 
whenever you start a program, you have to take a lot of things into consider, or when you, when you step into a program, whether it's new, whether it's um, existing, uh, you have to take into consideration like all of the different things around that. And so the past two um, were really unique situations. The first new campus I stepped on was a total revamp. Um, the school had just lost a language immersion program and they were building rebuilding from scratch. And that was also a Title I school. So I feel like all of those factors played into how I felt, but also how the students came together and how they felt as a school. And so, and also from a collegial standpoint, if that's the right word, yeah. um, my colleagues were also in the same boat. We were all joined together and we had a mission and we had a, um, unified goal to mm. help the students feel at home, right? And so I didn't feel so out of place with that. I was part of a, an overall mission. So that I, I didn't feel like I do now walking into an, a very um, established existing program where there's very little turnover. Um, so the way that I approached that, my first, my first move um, was just starting from scratch basically assuming that um, the kids were coming from all different areas and all different experiences and that I was there to learn about them and learn about their interest and see how that would fit into the program that the school was building. Mm. Because it, in, instead of it being a, instead of it being a language immersion, it was a like a global immersion. Yeah. We had a lot of globalness going on. So my curriculum looked a little differently. The second program that, um, I stepped into was kind of on the heels of, well, on the <laughs> the very beginning parts of COVID. Um, and so that made things look a lot different, but also our county did a lot of redistricting. So again, I had this situation where there were a lot of students from different programs that had different backgrounds. And so I took that into con consideration starting from scratch. Um, but I didn't have that mission. So we were not building a new school necessarily. So the emphasis was on learning more about my colleagues and learning about the school and learning about the culture that was already there in place and being eyes and ears, but also knowing that the students were um, coming from lots of different areas. And I approached it as if, um, you know, I need to get to know the students first again, which I think is a good way to start, but also, um, realizing that they're even though it might have been stronger their musical background might have been stronger than my previous school that it might be a little um not as i would say um consistent mm -hmm. <laughs> i had some students coming from some schools there were probably four different schools that they were feeding from that the school was feeding from there were four different programs and i knew a little bit about each music teacher and how they used to teach or how they taught um so i had backgrounds and so it was a matter of saying oh which music program did you come from <laughs> and kind of learning about them from their former teachers and that kind of thing. So with this new program that I'm stepping into, I'm in completely different territory because I'm taking over a program of a teacher who was there for 20 years. Um, this is not a Title I school like my previous two schools. And so things are very well established. There's very little turnover. Um, and so 
I am, I would say a little more nervous this time around because I'm filling big shoes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot different. So I'm not, um, I think there's more room for comparison between the previous teacher and myself. So I'm taking that in consideration and, and holding space for that. But I think most of all, I'm just trying to keep my eyes on the prize, which is building relationships with students and, and getting to know them first as always. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So several things that I want to circle back and talk about. Number one, um, getting to know students and what that means. Uh, we also talked about this idea of min of listening with your eyes and your ears and your body. And that's probably from the musical perspective. So like students first getting to know students is one kind of bucket that you're thinking about. Another bucket that you're thinking about is musically. How do I know where they are? Well, I'm going to listen with my eyes and my ears and my body. And that tells you the next steps that you can take. So I want to talk about that as well. Um, I want to hang out though on two ideas first. One, Amanda, you have um, kind of every qualification under the sun. Um, you are <laughs> uh, totally Kodai certified and you're like rocking and rolling on your scope and sequence. So is there any part of you with all of this um, training that you have about like, you know, a quote unquote, like third grade scope and sequence or like what upper elementary concepts looks like, is there any part of you that has any resistance to taking your upper elementary students specifically and saying, no, I'm not going to do what a textbook would say is an upper elementary, like a fourth grade concept. I'm going to back them up and I'm going to do in some cases, older beginners or um, near ish older beginners, so to speak. Do you have any resistance to, to that idea? Like, like you're wasting time or like you need to push them ahead or, or any, anything like that. That's a really good question. I think as a person, um, <laughs> I would really want my students to first be good people and musicians. And so when I take that as the primary goal of what I, where I want them to be, I have to set aside all of my, you know, credentials and certifications. <laughs> so I have to separate those things. Um, me as a music teacher, might really want to push that end goal of having them learn all of these specific concepts, right? Um, but I really feel like getting to know those upper elementary students might take a little bit more time because they're developing, right? Uh, and, and they are getting more into being social creatures and being more self-aware. And so I think that the relationships with those older students come a lot later. Um, it takes a little bit of time to develop yep. relationships. And so um, if it means getting off my sequence and just playing games for the first, I don't know, quarter or semester or however, you know, just to gain trust and get to know them, then that's what I will do. Absolutely. And I think that that is the most important thing with those older students. We want to make sure that they are um, comfortable with you, but also comfortable with music and music class. And as a music teacher at an elementary level, K through five, I feel like my main goal is to have, they might not go on in music in sixth grade, but I do want them to have a really great experience in their first experiences in music. So I want them to be able to look back and say, I am a musician. I, um, 
really loved music class in elementary school. I chose maybe or I chose to go to middle school music or maybe I didn't, but um, I really value that time as opposed to, you know, I, I kind of remember doing some things we learned, you know, we learned about um, <laughs> how to read music and, and rhythm. I, I really would rather them, them remember the experience as opposed to the concepts. So that's, um, really important to me as a teacher, mm. I think is just to making sure that they get the, they get the nurturing part first. Right. Yeah. 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 So you've kind of changed the goal. Like the goal is not right. to get to this specific point in the year. The goal is to develop good humans who are comfortable, um, with music class. However, that needs to look this year. So you right. have, you're achieving your goals, but you've changed the goals. Yeah, exactly. And being able to express themselves, I think, is another really big thing, being comfortable to express themselves. And I think that a lot of times and I've seen and I've heard from other teachers, they say that, well, my my third or fifth graders are so resistant to do anything. So when you come into a, an existing program or even a new program, you'll find that the older students are quite resistant because they already have ideas shaped about what music class is, right? <laughs> and so I think that helping them come out or be comfortable with what you're presenting to them is so much more important than um, forcing something on them. <laughs> so yeah, the buy-in is really great. This buy-in is really important. Mm. Yeah. So there's a dance there, Amanda, because I hear what you're saying and I agree. I've also seen you teach upper elementary though, and it's not a situation where um, kids walk in and they say, Dr. Hoke, today we are going to, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Like you're still in charge of your classroom. Like you're still, um, like when you get resistance from your students, you don't force them like, and, and push it really, really hard, but you also don't like flop over like a little flower. So how do you balance <laughs> that? And what are your upper elementary lessons? What do they, what do they look like? Because I agree with you. Like that's a big, um, that's a big question mark for, for a lot of people starting at a new campus. Maybe I'll say everyone starting at a new campus. Like we, we can kind of rock and roll with the lower grades and kind of get things going there. Um, but upper elementary is much more challenging. So can you talk to us about upper elementary? So yeah, upper elementary in that respect is, is tricky. I think having a, um, a palette of different activities and, and things that you can do that connect with them is really important. And of course that takes experience and time. Um, but there's so many great resources online now that you can discover and so many great training programs and that kind of thing that you can, you can look into and see what's tried and true. So having those, that palette of different ideas and you can go ahead and assume, well, they might like this, they might like that and write your lesson plan and make sure that, you know, you have your lesson plan there. If you're really nervous about it, you might even want to write out a script or write out things that you know that are, um, staples in that mm -hmm. lesson and transitions and stuff, which I think is really important. That's how I kind of work. But at the same time, you know, when I said going back to listening with your eyes and your ears and your body, I think this goes back to your body. I really sense this in my body when I'm feeling a class, when I'm in a class and I'm teaching and I'm leading, I'm the leader of the class. 
I can, I can feel when the class is um, really loves the content that I'm giving them or they don't, <laughs> if they're all in or they're not, I can feel if they like the activity or if they don't. So if I present something and one class says, or I could feel that they're not completely into it, I might ask them, I might just open up the floor and say, what was, what, um, what happened today? You know, why are we, why, do you not like this activity? Would you rather do X, right? <laughs> so you have a backup of something that, that to give them a choice, because I feel like choice is the, um, going to be really important with these older kids, especially with buy-in, because you always want to offer a palette of choices. And that's why having those backup activities are so important, but also knowing that that's going to happen, I think as a teacher, and mm. it takes a lot of time to develop that. And I think that is the hardest part, <laughs> one of the hardest parts about, about connecting and, 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 um, being an experienced teacher is just knowing your students and having that, um, that backup activity that you mm -hmm. might, you know, pull out of your hat someday because your students are not completely, completely on. Mm. Or if an activity goes really well and they really love it, then you check mark that box and write it down and keep it in your head for a later date. So um, you know that if there's another lesson that you planned that is not going well, you could always revert back to that um, depending on your situation. Yeah. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Then Amanda, give us some of your favorite upper elementary activities. Like I've never met these kids and I don't know what's going to work and I still don't know what's going to work, but I know what Amanda's kids have liked in the past. So what are your, what are some of your go-tos in your back pocket? Well, I think any kind of, um, teamwork group collaborative, that's somewhat competitive, um, was going to win the older students, um, hearts. They loved, they love to compete um, and they love a challenge um, for themselves or for their team, for their groups. Um, so I always go to games, not necessarily singing games, but it can be a singing game. Um, it can be really um, anything that, that involves movement. Um, and I think the request that I get the most is instruments, but for specific games, I would say um, I, I have always gone back to like YouTube de Rom. They, they really connect with that. It's a great circle game and students really get into it. Can you talk us through that just in case people aren't aware? Maybe we can put a link in the show notes. Oh, sure. So great. So students sit in a circle and they pass, and this is a great, I think, study beat um, <laughs> exercise. So they have a ball and then they pass the ball around on the beat at the beginning of the song. And then um, once the intro, there's, the song is kind of broken up roughly into two or three parts. And so the beginning intro, um, they pass the song on the beat and then there's a little counting part. Um, and then the students will, um, whoever is on, um, gosh, how does the song go? And at that point, Lobade means roll the ball. So whoever has the ball in Lobade has to take the ball and roll it. The ball has to stay in contact with, um, actually, I skipped a part. So whoever has the ball in Lobade passes it to the person next to them and stands up in the middle of the circle. And um, 
the person who has the ball is then going to roll the ball and try to hit their feet. <laughs> but the ball has to stay in contact with the carpet. And then there's a whole process of teaching it so that, you know, if, if the ball is rolling towards you, there's a personal space and you can't grab it from the person next to you, mm. that kind of thing. But, um, but the students love that. Um, and then if it hits their feet, they're out. Um, there's lots of different ways to play it. But um, I would say that uh, the students overall they asked to play that game quite a quite a bit <laughs> at least you know my past previous my two previous schools so that's a game that's that's a really great sitting down i think game so if you feel like it's the beginning of the year and students are not quite ready to get up and, and move a lot then you know that that's a great one to start especially if you're sitting in a circle looking at each other it's a good mm -hmm. way to to transition into that so and when yeah. you do that game amanda uh, I would imagine that you are going to have students start playing the game right away while you sing the song, or are you doing like a stop, first I'll teach you the song, now I'll explain the game, now we will do the game, or is it just kind of like you just you just start, you just do it? So um, it depends, it depends on what grade level, um, because the song um, is in a different language, <laughs> and so... If the students are more comfortable and and more of if you if you have an idea of whether they are willing to jump in and sing with you, um, I will just go ahead and jump in. But if you know the class is a little standoff standoffish, um, I might have them start with just the counting, the chant, you know, just to get them comfortable doing something. Yeah. And then that's kind of like the gateway into it. So if you can get them doing something into it, then hopefully. Um, they'll immerse themselves and, and, and so they'll start to sing along. So um, traditionally, if I have a class that's, that's really great singing and, and picks up on things, I will do, I will teach them the song beforehand if it doesn't take that long. But if mm -hmm. there's a class that's very standoffish that, that has a hard time, I'll teach them one little segment of it and say, okay, this is your part. And then we'll, we'll do it. And then I'll say, okay, now everybody, if you've got it, join me, that kind yeah. of thing. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah, Tup Duram is a great one. Give us maybe just one more for us to have in our back pockets. I know. I'm yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's okay. So that's a sitting down um, activity. Um, so if you wanted to go more into a like standing up or a different type of singing game, really you could go into a, an elimination. So I in, have in the past have done Obosiantaten as like a hand clap game, though if you have students that are a little odd about it, they might be weird about touching other students' hands. Um, but I love that because a lot of students have variants on hand clapping games, yeah. right? And so they really love that. And again, it's a steady beat activity, so it's mm -hmm. good for the beginning of the year. Yeah, so I played it as a child. <laughs> and so um, it might be a little different. There was all kinds of variations out there. But um, I believe it's an African-American clapping game. So it's an, an elimination game. So the students are in a circle and we put our hands out and um, there's a there's a way. So um, one person starts, they clap their partner's hand who's sitting in the hand and then it goes around the circle. Mm -hmm. So on it's a little hard to describe. <laughs> and then um, you can count to whatever number. It's like one, two, three, four, five. Whoever's on five is out. Whoever's on six is out. Um, you could do something like that um, and then have the students who are out possibly 
go break off and join into another game, you could have them do the same game. So if you have more than like four people, it can start, they can start their own game once they get mm -hmm. the hang of it. Because like I said, a lot of my students um, have um, previous knowledge of something similar like to this and they get excited because it's something that they already know. Mm -hmm. um, you could do it sitting down, you could do it um, standing. If you wanted more of like a standing up game, you could do even, um, there's so many fun, really fun games. Frog in the Meadow is really great for the older kids if you wanted to, to do um, more of the com competitive games. Um, Big Fat Biscuit, which is another really fun game. Mm -hmm. um, I do that in teams um, if you wanted to add some teamwork. So there's just so many really great um, games that I think that you might think that your older students might not like <laughs> because the songs themselves are quite simple, but the actual um, game themselves and the competitive aspect of that game will help connect with with them and they will sing the song because it is a competition. Mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so with that, you said that you're listening with your eyes and your ears and your body. What are you listening for or what are you watching for as you do those games? So I'm listening and I'm looking and I'm feeling the engagement of the classroom because I think my primary goal in a new situation is to see how students are receiving what I'm having them do. Sorry, this is my, my dog. <laughs> so going back to what I'm listening for in a classroom when I'm presenting these, I'm, I'm really listening and, and looking for engagement. I'm looking for body language to see if the students are starting to be more open and also express themselves um, through either body language, whether they're, they're tighten their shoulders and they're starting to relax. I'm also looking to see if they're more comfortable and possibly doing some of the activities that I'm having them do, um, but also what I'm hearing from them. So it could be what kind of sounds are they making with their voices? What kind of sounds are they making with their body? Um, where they might be at on a comfort level? Because we all know that if you're not comfortable, you're not going to fully mm. express or do what you're fully capable of, right? Yeah. Um, so it's really, you can't really assess anything until you get that student at a moment when they're completely comfortable with you and comfortable with the content that you're giving them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can assess them, but you would be assessing their comfort level right. in the classroom, not, yeah. not a musical skill level. Yeah, yeah. Right, absolutely. exactly, right. Okay, so then in terms of uh, musical content. We've talked about how we are going to kind of pull things back. So regardless of whatever someone has told us about a third grade concept, fourth grade concept, you're pulling it back. You're introducing things with games first. Um, and you are listening and watching for how they interact with each other, how they're interacting with you, um, and how they're interacting with things like a steady beat and a singing voice or really any sort of vocalization at all. Right. Yeah. In terms of um, if we could point to something on a scope and sequence, where would you be starting, assuming all of that goes well, where would you be starting your program in terms of musical content? Sure. So for the olders, for the three for three through five, right? Yeah, let's take that. I've done it a few ways. I've done it a few ways. So, um, and it, this is a really popular question. I feel like everybody always wants to know, <laughs> what do you do with these older beginners? What do you do? 
Um, and as far as content is concerned, I really think that having them open up and be able to express themselves with voice um, on a sequence. So hmm. getting them singing um, is really, and, and, and in mine.com, you know, you might only get like 60% that are singing 70%. But if you present it as if something that is natural, that is totally normal um, in your classroom of singing, um, then I think it will go a lot better instead of apologizing and saying, okay, you know, class, we're going to sing a lot this year. And, you know, I feel like this is really important. This is important for you and your musical development. I think taking a step back from that and just making it a normal, um, a norm in your classroom. So as far as content's concerned, I always go back and start with my repertoire. And then from there, you know, then I dive into my sequence. And so, um, Traditionally, I think in the past, I have tried to do my lower grade level sequence with my upper grade level sequence, and you will soon realize that that does not work. <laughs> um, you can pull games and you can pull some activities from the lower grades, but as a whole, you're not going to have the same um, depth, I think, that you would get as if you were to really look into um, something that that is catered or fit more towards your older beginners. So last hmm. year I had done a lot of work from your planning binder and used your sequence from the older beginners. So um, the sequence um, looked more like starting with me, Ray Doe, instead of so me for Kawai teachers out there, um, which um, might not be so uncommon to people who um, are familiar with Fire Robin or any of right. those <laughs> other. Right, a lot of but, old people start with me, Rado, as well. Yeah. yeah. Yes, for sure. And I totally understand why. Um, totally get it. So um, from a melodic standpoint, but so extracting and pulling out um, those me, Rado gems and your repertoire, um, starting with a few very simple canons just for mm. singing. And I find that a lot of the older students who don't have experience in singing really love singing in very simple um, canons or rounds. I really think that they connect with that and they feel enabled by that. So that's really um, high on my list. So we, I might spend a few moments at the end of class or the beginning of class just singing through some things, right? And the students that are not comfortable with it, they don't have to sing. You don't want to force that on them, right? Um, you don't want to make it a requirement, but eventually once things start to sound good, the older students say, oh, this actually sounds pretty good and they feel more confident and then they'll join in when they're ready. Um, I've never had that not work. So mm -hmm. um, starting from a, a melodic standpoint, me, Ray Doe, but also um, from taking a step back on the rhythmic side, I think steady beat is, is very important because as we've seen as educators that steady beat is very developmental. And so you might have some third or fourth graders who have not quite, yeah, yeah who have not quite gotten to that milestone yet. And that's okay, but you do need to know that for <laughs> rhythmic development. Um, you need to be, keep your eyes out for that. So mm -hmm. I think it's important. That's um, that's such a great point, and that makes me think. You know, you mentioned that you were in the planning binder last year, and um, I believe you'll still be using it this year. No pressure. Mm -hmm. We're all yes. here. No, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, but that that makes me kind of inspired to do more rounds and canons, um, maybe even earlier, because we were doing stuff, but I kind of held off towards the 
like middle towards the end of the year ish. But you're totally right that it's something that we can start to kind of sprinkle in a little bit earlier because I find that as well that students are um, even if you don't consciously know the whole musical vocabulary that you're using in terms of like rhythmic or melodic content you don't need that to have a really enjoyable musical experience and something like a round or a canon or part work um, I find mm -hmm. like adding a rhythmic ostinato students really really like that um, or a melodic ostinato because it, it kind of takes um, some basic musical vocabulary and it kind of elevates it a little bit more. Oh, totally. And it's very, and it, it, it makes them feel like they are a part of something. I think it makes them feel more of that community aspect of making music that sometimes it's hard to get in our classrooms because we might still only see them a few times a year or mm -hmm. once a week or so. And I think that that is really important, whether it's the part work or whether it's the singing together as a group, I think that that is a valuable skill. Sure. Yeah, the ensemble, the ensemble experience is so different from sometimes in some situations, it's going to be so different from anything that they've ever done, um, or anything that I've ever been asked to do. So yeah, starting with games, starting with something collaborative, I think is huge. So you mentioned, Amanda, that you are doing Steady Beat and Mi Re Do, and then kind of moving on from there with your older beginners. Right. With with your lower kids, let's talk about like second grade, like maybe second, third. Where do you where do you see yourself with that group musically? Because they could kind of float either way and then you feel like, well, maybe neither of them is gonna work, you know, it's like mismatched <laughs> with, with either approach you do, you know? So what are your thoughts on that? Right, right. And that is so tricky because you could start out second grade and they would be in so mean you know, they they would be in a different territory than by the end of second, second grade and, yeah. and and really it takes a lot of um thoughtful thoughtfulness from the teacher on where you're going with them because if you start out with so me and everything's great um and you start out with um your sequence in a traditional um fit what you've always done right um and then you get halfway through the year which is i'm, I'm talking about my last year actually is yeah, having a second grade like, and you get <laughs> this is yeah this is yeah this is what happened and then you get through halfway and then you realize what you were doing um with your second or third grade class they were not buying into they got bored with and you have to quickly move on um i think that you have to shift and you have to pivot sometimes and change your repertoire so that it meets those growing students. And I think it comes back to the repertoire. And I think it comes back to you being um, listening with your eyes and ears and seeing where they are at um, as musicians and as people. Um, and that might make hard decisions for you, like more work <laughs> and having to decide, well, okay, I was pursuing this aspect, but I think that as a teacher and I think as I need to actually shift and move it. No, I'm being very vague, but you need to shift your sequence to fit what they're doing a little bit better. So it was second grade last year. Um, I was really trying to do the so me route for a few months and it worked at the beginning of the year. They really loved it. And just as full disclosure, my students were far behind as everybody, I don't want to say behind because it's not quite the right thing, but because of COVID we lost a good, you know, two years, solid years um, singing. And so I was really pushing um, 
my pre-COVID self, my pre-COVID classes, I was really pushing that ideal on them of what I wanted to hear and what I wanted to see. And they were not quite giving me what I wanted. And so I was pushing it even more, finding more repertoire to fit into this mold. But eventually Mm -hmm. I just realized that it was not the right thing. So I, I had to switch over and change things so that they were comfortable so we started new repertoire and and it really just breathed new life into the whole class so it took us a little while because i had to front load all that repertoire and i had to do a lot of things that shifted gears but in the long run i think that they got more out of the second half of the year and i was able to get them further along what were those Um, repertoire shifts what did you so you started with so and me and then did you mm-hmm. jump to like me Rado repertoire? Yes, mm-hmm. about around December. Yeah, I did um, around December. So it felt kind of very awkward to me to do that because you always, I'm always thinking about transitions as a Kodai teacher. Like, well, how does this relate to that? And how does this? But then once you actually sit on, you actually think about it, I think you realize that all of those things before, even though I might not have named them or presented them, um, they were valuable skills, right? They were valuable in that they were singing, they were active music making, they were doing these things. And so shifting to me, Rado was easy for them, I think, because mm-hmm. they were very excited to get more repertoire. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I shifted the repertoire, they were singing more in tune, they were doing things um, with more enthusiasm, and it just worked out to where we could, you know, get to that me, Rado, presenting me, Rado, as opposed to so me, and, and rhythm wise too. So getting past you know, just ta and toddy um, or whatever rhythms of blues you might use into more um, understanding of, oh, this is a rest and this is, you know, Takadimi. We were able to go a little bit further because I was not totally caught up on this. So me, <laughs> it's just, it's so funny how whenever you shift one thing, other things open. And so, um, and this goes along going back to starting a new program because sometimes you have to take a leap of faith, right? Sometimes you have to do things and sometimes times they don't work and you have to readjust and you have to change things and you might have the ideal in your head, might make a decision about something and then you realize it's, it's maybe it was the right decision at the time, but now it's changed and you have to like adjust and I think that's the anxiety of moving into a new program or an existing program that we all have. And mm-hmm. so I'm trying to find that space with myself right now, instead of saying, this is my sequence, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. I really can't say that until I meet the students and, and do all the things and get to know them. And I have to deal with this anxiety as a teacher of not knowing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's more of not knowing and having that like, well, what if it doesn't work out kind of thing. And just knowing that that is mine, (laughs) that is my anxiety, the students will get what they need Mm -hmm. as long as I am like listening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking about this phrase of like teaching is not an exact science or, or something along those lines. And I was, um, I was texting my family about this and I was like, but couldn't we say that it is an exact science in that you don't know what's going to happen. And so you test a hypothesis and then you use that information to go back and, and make a new experiment. Like, couldn't we say that it, this absolutely is an exact science, right? Because, um, <laughs> because we don't know. And that's, and that's the whole point, right? So, uh, I think that gets into, um, you know, conversations like what exactly science is and that's not my area, but this idea of not knowing something. And so you try something, 
and you know that it might flop or it might fly and it might do something in between. And whatever happens, you're going to take that information and roll with it into, into the next month, into the next week, whatever it is. Right. Yeah, exactly. And just, just roll with it and know that again, your overall goal, you're building, um, you know, great humans and you're building hopefully lifelong musicians, as opposed to somebody who knows the difference between so and me and me right exactly. <laughs> I think if you keep the overall arching goal of, you know, this is what I'm building and building, um, a program that is built on kindness and acceptance and creativity and being who you are. I think that that is um, the foremost important thing. And that is qualitative. So it's hard to say whether it be a scientific, you know, it's right. scientific is, yeah, <laughs> the hard, hard that's thing. Not our, that's not our area. We'll, we'll have to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I'm no uh, scientist. But you and, so. I, you and I were having this conversation yesterday in your classroom. We were talking about like the, right. the things that you put on your scope and sequence, but there are also all of these things that can go on the scope and sequence, but they're much more like high level above, above the musical content. It's like all of the musical content is pointing towards a specific or, or like a, a big idea, right? So it's not so and me for so and me's sake. It's so and me because we're trying to get to something else. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's hard to access whenever you're in a new program. It's hard to like, it's hard to, whenever you're so worried, whenever you're worried about having all of those palettes of different activities and the actual being in your classroom and being with your students and what are we going to do? Like, and what is my, classroom management going to look like? What is my procedures and transitions? It's hard to keep that in mind. Um, mm -hmm. So, but I think if, if we can write it somewhere in big, bold letters, I think that, <laughs> that remembering that will, will bring a little bit of calm and, and um, take away some of the anxiety for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Last thing I want to circle back to is this idea of what if I do something different from how the previous teacher has mm -hmm. done it? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's really hard. I think that anybody who steps into an existing program where there's been another teacher um, has struggled with that. And I can tell you that I've been in a program where the students say, I miss so-and-so, I miss miss so-and-so, <laughs> right? And that is always so hard um, to hear that because it's hard not to take it personally and kids will say what they will say. And it usually doesn't involve you. <laughs> you have to remember that. Um, I have to remember, especially as a parent um, now, sometimes whenever kids say things, it's truly how they feel and you need to honor that and not take it upon yourself. Right. So I think it is as an adult in this situation and, and as a teacher stepping into an existing program, I think it's really easy. And I've done this to say, well, how can I do what the previous teacher did so the students will like me? Right. Mm -hmm. Especially if you know that the existing program um, prior, the teacher before you was well liked and received and um, what you want, you know, you want the music program to be liked and you want those things. Um, but you also have to hold yourself um, to your own standard <laughs> and not try to completely take away from who you are as a person. So I've been doing a lot of 
self, some soul searching the past yeah. <laughs> couple weeks because um, I'm stepping, like I said, I'm stepping into an existing program where the teacher was very much loved and well-received and she built a great program, which I'm so fortunate for. And I love her dearly, but I, she's different for me. She, um, she is bubbly. She is happy. She is a singer, professional singer. I'm a professional flutist. You know, I'm not. Happy. What are you saying? No, I am. <laughs> I know. No, I, I understand. I understand. Yes, right. I'm probably more reserved, I would say. Uh, so I have to think, well, I have those feelings. They're valid. They're true. And though when I go into my classroom, I, I need to put that aside and I need to think about what makes me feel the most comfortable? What can I show the students about me that is purely to myself and then listen, right? So I can present myself and then I can listen to them. So instead of focusing all about myself, I'm turning it around and, and saying, I need to be listening more as opposed yeah. to worried about myself. So when I put the emphasis on, you know, showing the students who I am, you know, it's more than just putting together an about me slide. Maybe I bring in my um, flute and I play for them a little bit and highlight the things that make me special. But then I also put the, more of the emphasis on them. Um, I think that it takes away some of that anxiety that I have about stepping into big shoes, right? Mm -hmm. So I think turning it around and focusing on the um the students as opposed to and validating their experiences as having just lost their amazing music teacher i want to sure. open my ears and listen and see what they did like because i can assume but i actually don't know right and being open to changing things too i mean we get so set, set in our ways but if i step into a program and say here's how we do things. We do this, that, and this. And then you get along a few months later and you have a student that says, oh, but I really miss this. Or I really miss doing that. Um, it could be a really great moment for you to say, well, will you teach me? Right. And so that gives the student a little bit of, um, I guess it gives them a little bit of an opportunity to step up and teach the teacher. Right. And that's always a great opportunity um, and a great bonding experience for for them. And also it shows them that you are a learner as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sets so, yeah, it sets the tone. Absolutely. So, but I think um, taking a step back and then turning the tables and instead of focusing on what you might perceive as a deficit, um, look at the positives and, you know, this, the, the others that are involved in this equation as opposed to just yourself. So um, I'm trying to really focus on, you know, learning each student and learning what makes them unique and special and um, and letting that shine mm. and being all ears and eyes because they'll have me for so many years. They have plenty of time to get to know me. And but I want to be received as somebody who's a good listener. Mm. And, yeah. Can change and adapt and learn. Yeah, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, so Amanda, in our last in our last moments, any um, parting wisdom that you have for anyone listening, starting a new program? Oh my goodness. Well, I had a professor um, from Switzerland, <laughs> and she used to always say, "Breathe and fill your feet," and I think that is a very um, you know, up there kind of thing to say, but I think it's a really good advice 
because once we breathe, we start to fill our whole bodies and realize that we are here as human beings and we are grounded in the earth and that no matter what happens, um, if you do all the preparation at a time and, you know, it doesn't go as the way, the way that you plan, you just take a deep breath and then you change and you move on. <laughs> so yeah. I think that that is probably the best advice is just to be, you know, present with your breath and present with your body and present with the idea that things will change. <laughs> and that's probably for the best, you know, sometimes whenever it's needed. Beautiful. <laughs>